What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destiny for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on John Finkel. He is an author of many, many books. Welcome to the show, John. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. No doubt, man. It's a pleasure. I've done a very brief intro there, but for people who are not familiar with you, let's uh, tell them a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you mentioned the books. I've written um, a lot of sports biographies, uh, biographies of uh, Charlie Ward, you know, won the Heisman Trophy and uh, was a, you know, in the finals uh, point guard in the NBA. I worked uh, on Mean Joe Green's autobiography. My books have been endorsed by Mark Cuban and Spike Lee and all these guys. So a lot of sports, a lot of fitness books. Uh, I have my big magnum opus coming up is the Definitive biography of the Macho Man Randy Savage, which comes out next spring, which is like the book I've wanted to write since I was twelve. So I'm psyched. That's awesome, man. Tell me a little bit about your about your background uh, before you started writing books. Tell me a little bit about your growing up. Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up all over the place. Uh, at one point, I was in like five schools in four years. My, my dad kind of lived a bit of the American dream, where he, um, you know, he was the night manager of a, of a Toys R Us store. He started out as just like one, you know, just an employee worked his way up to being the manager of the day shift and then the whole store and then a bunch of stores and you know over 10 15 years all the way up to like the executive suite so in order to make that happen we moved around a ton so i grew up mostly in boston but we lived in ohio we lived in california we lived in florida uh, and then we moved to new jersey actually my very first day of high school so at one point it was just like start a school have a year move start a school have a year move so we got used to that for a while, and then my dad always promised us we would do, you know, whenever we got to high school, we would stay. So we did. We got all four years in New Jersey. I went to school in, in Virginia at James Madison, um, and then right immediately moved out to L.A. because I wanted to write. I thought I wanted to write movies, um, but I ended up getting a job uh, on Comedy Central for The Man Show with uh, Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla. And I, uh, I basically talked my way onto that. I was, I was actually unloading trucks. Uh, on the lot. That was my first job. And then I was literally like building the desks for these guys as they were getting ready for the show. We were talking sports and just dude stuff. And and, and I was like, hey, I could I could build desks for anybody. I'd like to build desks for you guys and maybe work on your show. And, and that got my start there. And I started, you know, pitching some writing and things. I was a PA, which is like, as anyone knows, the lowest of the low, low totem pole and really anywhere. But in Hollywood, it's like, go get coffee, turn the lights on, go pick up so-and-so from the airport. Um, and, but I realized then that I really wanted to write under my own name. Uh, so I started pitching like muscle and fitness and men's fitness. And back then, um, Joe Weider owned all these publications, um, men's fitness and muscle and fitness and flex and all these fitness publications that I grew up reading. And they were all in Woodland Hills, which is a couple, you know, an hour north of where I was in Hermosa beach. And I started pelting them with ideas. And, you know, once you get one article out there and you see your name in print and it's on magazines and the airport and at Barnes and Noble and, you get that little rush of seeing your name out there. That kind of got me off and loaded on the writing front. That's awesome. Do you remember what your first article was that got published and in oh, what magazine? Yeah, man. So this is a great, so I, this is a, 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 a segue to this is something I want to talk to you about, but I am the same size as you. I'm 5'11", 190. 
And and before I get into that story, I always wanted to, I always, I see you write that a lot. And I always joke that like, I'm an athlete, you're an athlete. Like there's no 5'11 dudes. Like you, if you, once people hit 5'10", they either say they're six foot, which is an absurd <laughs> leap, right? You know this, or they just go six six one. If you're five nine, you can't pull off six foot, so you don't say it. But for me, and I don't know if you did this, and I know you didn't grow up here, you grew up all over the world, but like basically in my twenties, once I hit five eleven officially, I just was six foot. I said I was six foot. No one questioned it. I wore big sneakers, like playing basketball with you know high tops. I was six foot. And I just rolled through that. And then somewhere when I got more secure, maybe in myself, in my early 30s, after having kids, I dropped the facade and I was like, I'm 5'11", I'm 190. And so I wanted to praise you, Zuby, for, for standing tall. There are 5'11 dudes out there. We're out there, man. There's, there's millions of us. There's millions of us. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's 5'11". It's not, it's not six foot. Did you ever list yourself as six foot? Well, I don't think I've ever listed myself at six foot at any, at any time. Um, no, I've always said I'm, I'm 5'11 since I've been 5'11. Oh, good for you. I'm pretty sure I have several driver's licenses today, John <laughs> because it was like, well, I'm right there. Like, who's going to really be like, really, bud? And then yeah. at some point I did 5'11, so I'm proud 5'11. So this is a perfect segue to that story. The first story that I actually landed at Men's Fitness uh, was, and this was the exact first line of the pitch was, I'm white, I'm 5'11, I'm going to teach myself how to dunk. So I'm a big basketball fan, played basketball my whole life. Never had a big vertical. And so the pitch was I was going to go to the physical, like the physical, the trainers and the strength and conditioning coaches at UCLA, who coached UCLA basketball team because I was in LA. And I was going to ask them to put together a workout for someone like me to dunk. And I would chronicle that for men's fitness. And um, the editor there at the time was like this, you know, this is, this isn't that far along. This is like 2001, but I actually had a print. I wrote it and printed it and sent it over mail, uh, the, you know, within LA. So I got home and there was a message on my machine telling me like, hey, John, this is guy's name is Jerry. Uh, I just got your, your packet, which was at that point when you pitch magazines, such an old time, but like you had to print up your actual bylines. So whatever articles you've written. So for me, that was from like my college paper and stuff like that. And you had to put a query letter on top, which was, you know, who you are, your pitch for the article, why you want to write for it and why you were perfect to write for men's health or whatever publication, men's fitness and go from there. And they accepted it. So I was like one for one for like big time, huge publications. Um, and so I chronicled it and I did it. It was amazing. Um, I, I have witnesses. My friends went out with me. Unfortunately, um, like the training was really, really intense. And I like pulled my quad. Like the first time I actually went to play basketball and like use these new vertical leaping skills. Uh, and it was, it's weird, by the way, gaining like eight or 10 inches in vertical over like four months. Like all of a sudden I'm jumping. You don't know how to land. Like when you're, I've never hung on the rim. I was hanging on the rim. It was very, very strange. Um, I pulled my quad and the, the training was very intense. It was all kinds of like jumping in the pool with dumbbells and like jumping deadlifts and band work. And it was basically, if I wasn't getting paid to do it anymore, like I wasn't going to upkeep this thing. Um, but that was the first article that I landed and, uh, and it was amazing. That's awesome. So tell me about the, the journey from the journey from there. What was the next step? Yeah. So, uh, as everything in life, like I had a huge win first and then I was like, Oh, for my next, maybe 20 pitches. Like, it was a massacre after that. Like I was thinking I'm in, I'm 22 years old and I am finally writing for like, I read men's fitness my whole entire life. I am like hundred percent ready to be like a cover story writer, move over to maybe sports illustrated. Like that was ultimately what I wanted to do. And I just could not get another Corey letter landed. Like I was hitting every magazine that had men's or muscle or fitness in the title. I was hitting up like every magazine and finally it was, it was very humbling. Um, so I ended up getting a job writing, oh, I don't forget this, like, a, like five cents a word for the Santa Monica Sun 
and all these local papers just covering like softball leagues and town minutes. And I had no, I had to build up byline. And so that article, that, that place, I ended up thinking like, I want to get creative. How can I stand out? Like everybody, you know, is somebody who lives out there is trying to cover the Lakers or the Clippers or trying to, you know, cover the, you know, the Dodgers or something. So I wanted to do more first person stuff. I always liked George Plimpton, like where writers put themselves into the stories. So I pitched a story called The Day in the Life of Santa Monica Area Hoops, where I played pickup basketball all day at three different courts, at Venice, at Santa Monica, and then um, all the way down in like um, Redondo or whatever. And so it was, you know, the famous Venice court. So I chronicled all that. And then I eventually between the, that by that time, the men's fitness article had been published. So now I had a big publication, you know, a good sports story byline in a printed magazine. I had a couple of really good sports bylines where I was getting interviews in the newspaper. So I kind of bundled those up and started pitching larger and larger places. And then ultimately I got my way back into the men's fitness because I kept pitching like at the time, you probably don't remember. They used to just put like random fitness models on the cover. Just some guy. Nobody really knew who it was. Um, in fact, the first cover that I did a story in, uh, your old friend Joe Rogan was on the cover for Fear Factor way back in the day. So mm. I, I have the issue. By the last time he had hair, he was very much smaller back then. But it was a Fear Factor puff piece of like this rip, the ripped, you know, the ripped guy on covering a Fear Factor <laughs> back then. That's what he was known for. And then he ended up. Our careers are weirdly intertwined. Taking over the Man Show the last season I was there. So. Um, we ended up getting uh, those articles published and I ended up getting uh, athletes on the cover. So my big, big break was I got uh, Tiki Barber who played for the New York Giants. Uh, now is a big media personality on the cover of Men's Fitness in 2003 for my first break. So at that point, I kind of leveled up to the point where I was interviewing pro athletes for major magazine covers. And I went from, uh, I did probably 10 or 12 covers in a row uh, with you know, Roy Jones Jr. and Carl Malone and Mike Madonna and all these big athletes. And then I moved from there um, to GQ. I had a column in GQ, a health and fitness column in GQ for a while until I picked up like a big senior editor position at Muslim Fitness. I stayed there for a few years before I did books. I hear that. What is it that got you so interested in fitness to begin with, sports and fitness? Is that just something that you did a lot of growing up? Why did you choose that particular lane? Yeah, my, my best sport growing up was swimming, actually. Um, I played football. I played basketball. Um, for high school, you know, I was an all-state swimmer. That was what I was always good at. If I had, if we were talking about five eleven, if, if I used to go to University of Texas swim camp when I was a kid, like, I mean, they flat out told me like I was an amazing butterflyer. If you hit like six two, six three with the big butterfly wingspan, like, you got to ride here, like, do it. And I just, I stopped at five eleven. I kind of for swimming with stroke rate and all kinds of different reasons for butterfly, which was my stroke. It's, it's very hard when you're standing next to a guy six four to just your engine has to be so much stronger to compete mm-hmm. in a hundred butterfly or a 200 butterfly, it's just, you don't have, at some point, it's like, you just don't have the tools to, you know, to do those things. So, but I was always into the training aspect of it. Um, I, I had, I'm getting men's fitness, men's health forever. Uh, ultimately, you know, once you realize you're not going to be a, a pro athlete, it's like, what's right about them. I was always a, a voracious reader for biographies. I always liked the training parts of stuff, you know, goofily, like the Rocky montages. And I always digged that stuff. And I always wanted to know, well, what was that workout that they did? And you know, they'll always say like they worked hard in the off season or whatever, but I was really into what that off season workout was. Um, and men's fitness did a lot of that. And Muslim fitness did a lot of that. So to get the opportunity um, to go train with like, you know, uh, Dave Batista for a couple of days in, in, in Tampa while he was getting ready at the time for the WWE to transition to acting or, you know, to be with Randy Couture for two days while he's training for a UFC fight. I just dug that stuff. I loved it. That's awesome, man. So you've had an opportunity to meet a huge number of 
of all these athletes. Yeah. Um, so what was the first book you wrote? So you started out with the articles in various publications, but what was the first actual book you put out and how did you go about that? Yeah. So, you know, books are tough. The, the, the best thing about books is that I will say like if anybody can, you know, if you know how to write, know how to put together a, a strong proposal, um, you, you can do a book. The, the hard part is if you're going the traditional route to get somebody to kind of believe in you of why you could do it, what the audience is. Um, and I, I always liked, so a lot of the writers I grew up reading um, were sort of the newspaper writers from, I lived in Boston mostly, like I said, growing up. So, you know, Bob Ryan, Dan Shaughnessy were, were amazing growing up. Um, Peter Gammons and Rick Riley, who's a famous Sports Illustrated writer. A lot of these guys early on in their careers, what they did is autobiographies where, you know, maybe their name wasn't big enough to carry a book or an audience, but they would partner with some kind of athlete who had a story to tell and help them tell their story. So after pitching a few ideas, I realized, like, like you said, I knew a lot of athletes at this point in time. And I, somewhere in the middle of this, I started writing for Yahoo Sports for a while. And I did a story on Nate Robinson, who, um, for those not familiar, he's 5'8", um, won three NBA dunk contests, is an incredible athlete. And I interviewed him uh, right when he was, this is, he like had like the best month. At one point, he had a month in the NBA where he was like the talk of the NBA in the playoffs. He outdueled LeBron for a few games and Dwayne Wade. Like he just, he was the talk of the playoffs for a month. He was scoring 20, 30 points in the fourth quarter, coming up clutch. And he and I did a story on like, you know, basically like, you know, what his, what his workouts were like. And we just got along. I, you know, how some, you've done a million interviews in the podcast. There's people who you end the interview and you're like, man, we probably should just be buddies, right? Like we should probably hang out if we're ever in the same city yeah. or we just have the same things in common. And Nate and I were like that. So after this crazy playoff run, I just texted and was like, dude, people need to know your story. Like you're, you're 5'8", first of all. So amazing to be in the NBA and succeed. Not only that, you won three dunk contests. But people don't know that he was actually like Mr. Basketball and Mr. Football uh, in Seattle, in Washington, when he was the high school senior. He could have played college football at USC. He was already like slated in as probably like an NFL cornerback if he wanted to go that route. All at 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, five, so he was like, let's do it. So we got in touch with his agents. And we, that was my first book was Nate Robinson's autobiography. And it was a, called Heart Over Height, which I always liked. That's awesome, man. I'm curious, when you're writing, uh, I've, I've never really thought much about the process of writing an autobiography. But how does that, how does that work? Well, actually, wait, isn't, is that an autobiography or is that, that's a biography, right? Isn't biography. an autobiography if... Yeah, biography they, is like I'm writing about like my Macho Man biography or Charlie Ward, where, where okay. it's not first person from their stories. I have, you know, for Macho Man, for instance, it's 300 interviews, it's a thousand newspaper articles, and you're putting quotes and doing all that stuff in. Um, the autobiographies are them telling the story. It's as if they're sitting down telling you their stuff. So there's yeah. advantages to that because you get complete and total access to this person and all the things that they want to tell about. The disadvantages is like you can't get other people's stories about them in there in a very clean way so if someone's like you know nate's there but then i interviewed spike lee about watching nate because he went to all the games at madison square garden i can't include any of spike's stories because it's nate's story yeah so that's that's the difference um, got it so this one is an autobiography autobiography so it's okay first got it person of nate talking like it's i i did this I yeah did that, you know, that. okay got it all right you, you know i actually got, got a i always thought an autobiography was written by the person who did it but is it more that it's a first person perspective yeah and the it's, definition? You know, it, yeah, it's so sometimes if it's a true like autobiography with a ghostwriter, you know, if someone is talented enough to write their own autobiography, which some writers do and people can do, but I would say that over 90% of them have a ghostwriter either credited or not credited. So mm -hmm. for me, because I had such a strong sports background and have, I'm always 
credited as like, so my books are always like, if I do them, it's not, so it's Nate Robinson with John Finkel, it's Mean Joe Green with John Finkel, Chad Hennings with John Finkel, because I bring my own audience and my own things to the table. Uh, there are a lot of ghostwriters who, uh, you know, sign NDAs, and I've done a few of those where nobody will ever know other than two of us that I helped that person write. Mm-hmm. So what's the process like for writing an autobiography? How much time do you spend with a person? Is it interviews? Is it conversations? Do you record it? How do you, I'm curious to know what the actual process of that is. It's not something I've ever thought of before, but I'm curious. Yeah, it's, a, it's like being an embedded reporter, sort of. Um, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a mind meld. So the beginning of it is I always like to, um, and at this point I kind of, when I, I haven't done one in a little bit, but the last few that I've done, it's like, I make sure we spend a lot of time together personally. I need to pick up your cadences of how you talk. I need to pick up the, the things that are important to you, where your sense of humor lies, what kind of stories you like to tell, what else we can dive into. So for Nate's, for example, um, I flew out to Seattle and basically lived with him for like a week. Went to his kids' football games, just hung out, got a feel because you're eventually going to interview his mom and you know friends and all these people to kind of not so much confirm stories in the sense that people are going to lie, but people's memories are horrendous. Um, I mean, it, it, it's it's amazing to me, and I do this too, people who were at something and there's video of what happened. I'm talking about sports, nothing like crazy. And they tell a story and you're like, first of all, it was the fourth quarter, not the third quarter. And you were on offense, not defense. And it was in, you know, it was in Tacoma, not like people just over the years, they tell stories and the facts just get blurred to the best version of the story, which is fine in, you know, sitting around having a few drinks with your friends or, you know, whatever. Uh, but it's not great in a biography where somebody who can read it's like, wait a minute, I was there. That's not how this happened. Right. So, so you have to cross reference the, the stories with people who were there and, and newspaper articles and things, but it's essentially like an embedded thing where you get to know the person. And then after a little bit, what I'll do is I'll start hitting on interviews. All right, let's talk about this today. Very loose, very much like we're doing now. Just the recorders on, you know, at the very end, I have like, here's the things we need to hit that we have. I need to know why you thought about this with this coach or, you know, what was your mom doing while this was happening, whatever the, the specifics are. But the 90% of it, the bulk of it is these kind of conversations. Let's talk about high school. What happened this freshman year? What happened sophomore year? Let's go through this game. And I'll do a lot of research so that I'm not just blindly doing it. It's like, okay, you know, you scored 14 points when you were a freshman the first time you called up to JV. Like, let's talk about that. So I know the things that I'm feeding, you know, getting into. Um, and that's how, how that works. I, I, I did um, Mean Joe Green's book, which, you know, he's just a football icon, probably the you know, best defensive player in the 70s, four Super Bowls, super famous guy. Uh, I lived in Texas at the time, and he lived about 30 minutes north of me, um, which was one of the reasons why it worked to do the book. And every Tuesday for about two or three hours, I drove to his house, sat in his living room, and we talked um, about his life, about his childhood, about his friends, about his family, about anything. And then we just over six months put together, you know, let's talk about this and that. Um, I'd find articles from his high school career, from his college career, or I'd find things that a coach said about him or a friend said about him, or, you know, I talked to his kids about, you know, tell me some stories and then he would tell those stories from his point of view. So it's very much like a deep dive on someone and then a mind meld to tell it how they would tell their life story. I hear that. And when you reached out to someone like Joe Green, is that someone you already had some contact with? Did you already know him personally or did you just kind of reach out like, Hey, I want to. I want to write your autobiography. How, how does that work? Yeah. So I was the uh, publisher for the College Football Hall of Fame um, when I lived in Dallas. So 
I wrote all of the media that this group called the National Football Foundation owns the rights to the College Football Hall of Fame. And for a couple of years, I ran all the media for them. So we had a group of beat writers covering all of college football, um, covering all of the, you know, each of the each of the conferences and all that kind of stuff. And so one of the initiatives that I had there was I wanted to do a series of books on College Football Hall of Famers. I, I had gone to the Hall of Fame a bunch for meetings. They have a bookstore like every sort of museum or hall of fame does. And they had plenty of books, but I was like, we're the hall of fame. We have access to all these guys. Like, why aren't we doing our own series of books? I'm a writer. We have 12 writers on staff. Like we can just divide these up and take some of the biggest names. Um, and so when we were starting to look at candidates, honestly, it was proximity. Mike, I'm sorry, Mean Joe Green was there. Uh, and so he had been to one event. So it was really interesting. I got his conf- you know, information from the hall of fame, basically a phone number. And I, it was a, you know, mean Joe, he's an older guy. So he's not like texting like we would all the time. It was like an email, you know, one of those old emails with like him and his wife in the email type of things. And it took forever to get back to me. And finally he agreed to have lunch and he wasn't being standoffish. It was just the tech version of it. And I told him what I wanted to do and how for him with all the autobiographies and frankly, even a biography or anything you're pitching a publisher, you really have to think about what's this new angle. So Mean Joe had had countless documentaries on the Steelers done about them. Um, he talked about the Super Bowls ad nauseum for the NFL. He had been a part of other larger biographies on his coach, Chuck Noll and other guys. So you, you know, he, in his mind, and one of the things he early said to me was like, I, I really don't have a whole lot more to, to offer. And so my angle was like, but no one's talked about the fact that like, you came from a very small school, you came from very meager beginnings. You were bullied as a kid. Like, I want the story of like everything leading up to the first Super Bowl, basically. And that really piqued his interest. So we went to lunch, me, him, and his wife. And, um, you know, everybody's recognizing him. It's, it's me. And then, uh, you know, the 6'5, 275 pound NFL legend sitting there. So he's being polite and signing autographs. And, and they're like, basically, who, who is this guy? And he was great. This is John. He's going to tell my story. And so that was my angle um, with him. And you really do have to sort of convince that you can trust me with this stuff. Um, I had already done one autobiography with, with Chad Hennings. Uh, it was a bit of an autobiography slash interview book with him. He, uh, he's an incredible guy. He won three Super Bowls with the Dallas Cowboys, but a lot of people haven't heard of him because he was a defensive guy. But he went to the Air Force Academy and actually served as a fighter pilot uh, in the first Gulf War, and then at 27 went to the NFL. So he he did his, you know he honored his service, served, and then became a 27 year old rookie after not touching a football for five years. And you know he was he's six seven, like barely fit into the cockpit. He had to get a special waiver to even fly. Um, I think it was the F 18 he flew, and uh, or no A 10 he flew A 10s. And uh, and so I'd already had that one book, so I brought that book with me. You know, social proof, as you know, is gold for almost anything. And he was into it, and so that's how I got Mean Joe Green to do a book, and uh, and we had a great time. I like occasionally still text him to this day, which is funny. That's awesome, man. And so at this point, you've written, am I right in saying, ten books? I've done ten, like I say, adult like books for adult readers. I did I, when I in about two thousand three, I landed a twelve book contract with the NBA, the National Basketball Association. Oh wow! To do a book for their Read to Achieve program. Uh, so like my, this was my pitch and somehow what they wanted to do a book, like telling the stories of the NBA stars to kids, but not in like a biography format, almost like a cartoon type format. So Mm. I pitched like, what if we had two like Beavis and Butthead types, but who were basketball junkies who just told these guys stories and we can take freeze frames of like their highlights in the NBA and have them like talk about them almost like a mystery science. This was, it's kind of popped in my head. And it sold. So, so I did books on Shaq and Kobe and Iverson and Ray Allen, and I'm sorry, and uh, Kevin Garnett and, and all these guys. 
And so I did all 12 books in that series. A couple won some like American Library Association awards for young readers. They're really cool. Um, unfortunately, the whole series was tied to Borders books. So when Borders went bankrupt, they, you know, however they distributed the rights to that, we did 12 and we were supposed to do baseball and football and all this other stuff. But uh, yeah, so I've done 10 like larger, you know, reading books that are, you know, biographies and things at Barnes and Noble. And then I did about a dozen kid books. That's awesome, man. I remember you also did one on uh, U.S. presidents, right? You did one on the yeah. athleticism ranking. Of... Jocks and chief, baby. <laughs> yes, jocks and chief. Tell, tell us about that one. So this is like a perseverance story because so I at Muscle and Fitness, once I got to be higher up, you know, I could kind of you go from pitching stories to like assigning stories. You know, unfortunately, as much as you love writing, anyone who's worked at a magazine, the higher you move up the masthead, the less writing you do. Right. You're like you go from like can I go to you know Minnesota and train with Block Reznor for three days and write about it to like, oh, let me see if the P&L budget for this trip makes sense. Like it sucks. Like you really just want to write. Like so the higher you up, you make a little more money, but you don't get to do so many stories. So once I moved up to the editor role, I would save some cool articles for myself. And I did, I believe it was a 2012 election. I did a, uh, the top 10 most athletic presidents. The basic, you know, this is before BuzzFeed, before even really social was posting a lot of stuff uh, for the magazine. It's a big cover story. You'll love the title. It was called uh, Red, White, and Huge, America's Top 10 Most Jacked Presidents. And, uh, and so I did a feature. It was very short, maybe 200 words, 100 words on each president that we ranked. And I was like, as I'm researching this, like, this is a book. This has to be a book. I know so many people, every time there's a presidential campaign, they're talking about the personal lives of presidents. You know, Obama's running and it's like, here's him playing basketball and here's his gym and here's his workout regimen. And, you know, George W. Bush, here's him biking at the Olympics. Like people care about what the athletic accomplishments are of our presidents. I thought, I pitched this everywhere, man. Like I, I could not get a publisher to understand that this was important and that people would buy it. So it got turned down like, I don't know, 20 something times. But I was like, I'd already been writing books. And this is right around the time where like Kindle, you could kind of go with CreateSpace, Amazon's version of doing it. And then Ingram Spark had a self-publishing option. And I was like, this book, I could write this and own this little domain, this little you know, niching down forever. I could be this, I could do this book and update it every four years. Maybe I'll just own it. So I just decided, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it and publish it. And I, and I know you've done this too. I'm going to get a cover design. I'm just going to do it all my, I, you know, I'm at a magazine. So I know everybody, I know someone who can design the cover. I know someone who can do the interior layout. I know someone who can help with all of the, you know, eventually like the, the SEO and the ISBN and all the stuff you have to do. So I did it and put it out myself and I did all the media myself. I knew, you know, I was on the other side of the media. So I had people pitching me all the time to get into the fitness magazines. So I just reversed it and was like, hey, I have this book ranking the athletic presidents. Like, I'm going to send it out to you. It got a couple big hits. It got in the New York Post. And then once it got in the New York Post, all of a sudden it really took off. And I, <laughs> I got flown to New York to do CBS This Morning Live, like live CBS This Morning about this little book that no one wanted. Sold, you know, made my money back tenfold by selling thousands of copies in a seven-minute interview. Um, so, yeah, that was like one of those little ideas. And every four years I updated, including, you know, whoever was recently a president. That's so interesting. Oh, wait. So that sing you said that single interview netted you thousands in sales? Yeah. Thousands really? Of copies. It was crazy. I wow. Did. So, you know, you can, I'm sure, I don't know what you use to publish um, your strong advice book or strong words, but like when I do, uh, you can track the sales like kind of a little bit per day. And I went into the, I went to flew to New York and the interview, I it was live. I did it like a Thursday, flew home and I went and looked and Man, like you can see, you know, any chart you're looking, it was like, you know, 10 books a day, 15, because the book had already been out for months. It was, you know, it takes a while word of mouth to catch on. 
you know, the, the, the time the, the, the writer of the New York Post contacted me, the publishing was another two months, right? Nothing just, you know, it's not like somebody finds it on Monday, the article's published on Tuesday. It just takes forever, as you know, for media to catch up to something cool, at least in my case. And uh, so it had been out, you know, it was doing, it had probably sold like seven or 800 books by then. Again, totally self-published. I spent maybe 500 bucks total. Like I did everything. So I'd already made money back. This was just a thing. And then I got home and I'm watching the chart and it was like, I can't, I was like, I thought it was a typo. It was like 700 books in like a day. And then, you know, it has a tail, 700 yeah, down yeah. to 300 down to whatever. Um, but I had the interview. It's on, I posted on Twitter sometimes to share. I mean, I put on a nice shirt and I'm sitting there and, and uh, they're asking me about what presidents do these things. And that, that, you know, that picked up more media, which other people did little snippets from it. Um, I don't even know. The book's probably sold four or 5,000 copies and it was the one no one wanted. <laughs> it's, it's such a, it's a, our podcast today is sponsored by The Wellness Company. Did you know that nearly 90% of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are produced overseas? That's an alarming statistic. If you don't have an emergency kit on hand, it's time to get prepared. The Wellness Company's medical emergency kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications that every single American should keep in stock. It comes with a 22-page instruction guide on safe medical use for everything from snake bites to COVID to bioterror events. Another stellar product from The Wellness Company is Spike Support. Whether you got vaxxed or not, the virus is still among us in some capacity, as well as the related spike protein. Spike protein can cause brain fog, tissue damage, blood clots, and more. Spike support is a detoxification powerhouse that aims to strengthen the body's natural immunity and flush out spike protein, so you can get back to that pre-COVID feeling. Get both of these products by going to twc.health forward slash Zuby and get 15% off with the discount code Zuby. That's twc.health forward slash Zuby and use discount code Zuby to get 15% off. Disclosure, the medical emergency kit is only available to U.S. residents. It's a pretty random topic for a book, yeah, it's but, it's, but it's kind of funny. And I treated it like um, like Michael Lewis treat Moneyball or something. Like, like I did it where it's completely objective. So there's zero politics in this book, not even a mention of a political party. It's just I came up with five traits to rank each person, like from their how what the workouts they did in the office, like their pre-presidency, like you know, when they were high school, college, uh, their their endurance, you know, five things. I ranked them one to ten and just went through every president, you know, I'm calling like you know, the Andrew Jackson library and, you know, going, you know, really went, I treat it like a, you know, as if someone was paying me a ton of money to write this book. And I think it paid off because like whenever people read it, they like the rankings, they like, you know, how it's objective and how some guys who were really good in college didn't do anything when they became president or vice versa. Um, some names surprised people who were at the top and the bottom, but yeah, it was really like a, I don't know, self-publishing success story. Yeah. How do the, um, most recent, actually, but before that one, how did you do research for the older presidents? I can get how you do the newer ones, but yeah. for, you know, going, going way back to the, you know, 1700s, 1800s, how do you, how do you research their athleticism? So I came up, what I did was like, so in the 1700s, you know, the first maybe 10 or 12 presidents, you know, obviously they didn't have a little league. Obviously they're not playing AAU basketball or whatever. However, the things that mattered at that time, I kind of just counted with equal weight. So horse riding, right? Like, horse riding was a status symbol. It was like being in, you know, a, a five-star recruit in football. Like if you were an incredible horse rider and you could tame like the hard, the wildest horses, uh, you were considered a great, they considered you athletic and strong, right? So, so Washington uh, was considered the greatest horse rider in the colonies, you know, British or otherwise. Like he was, he was a head taller than, than anybody else. He was a full 6'2", 230 or so. Um, he looked, you know, the joke always used to be from the writers at the time, like, 
if every world leader at the time was just standing with their shirt off, he was the only one who you would think was actually like a president. All the other leaders were, were portly and hadn't lived in the wilderness and, and weren't you know, this towering figure. They were kind of coddled a little bit. Um, and he was a big, big dude. And so he was the best horse rider there. Um, he has all these random feats of strength. Um, he threw a rock across this pond that no one ever, ever had done before. There's a place in Virginia called the Natural Bridge, which is this stone arch that goes, you know, I don't know, I think it's 150 or 200 feet in the air. And somebody, a bunch of the soldiers had, were trying to throw a rock over it, and they bet him that he couldn't, and he cleared it, and he was the only one who cleared it. And he threw a javelin farther, which is like a, an iron rod that he had on his, on his plantation farther than anybody else. So you kind of have to have fun with it. You know, the older presidents, like I knew, like, okay, Reagan played football. Here was the games he played. You know, here he was a lifeguard. Um, you know, Jimmy, you know, Jim, Jimmy Carter ran, you know, marathons, like he were his times versus George Bush's time. So the old newer presidents, it really wasn't too tough to like, you know, Gerald Ford, he played football, he played at Michigan, you know, George W, uh, George Bush, the first played Yale baseball, World Series, you know, so you knew things. But yeah, for the first 10 or 12, it was like, you know, John Quincy Adams swam, you know, every day in the Potomac, like, a lot for like an hour at a time, even in the winter. Like I had to count that towards something. So it's kind of like I said, it's a fun book. It's if someone wanted, you know, some historian wanted to poke holes in it, I'm not going to be like, listen, <laughs> listen, David McCullough, you're wrong about this. <laughs> so who, who, who's at the who's at the top and who's at the bottom of the rankings? Yeah. So the top is, is Gerald Ford in terms of pure true athleticism. What we would say he was an elite boxer. Uh, he played and you know he was a national football a champion in college football in Michigan. Um, he could have played in the pros. He could have played with the Detroit Lions, gave him a contract and other things, and he wanted to go into other things and go into politics. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, everybody always talks about, was like a, a grinder. He wasn't like the most gifted athletically, but he was definitely the most athletic in terms of the things he did uh, the most. Abraham Lincoln was an extraordinary uh, street fighter, which people don't know. Uh, he was an undefeated street fighter. He's in the Wrestling Hall of Fame for it. I mean, he had, he would like, people would go into the town square and like bring their tough guy from other towns to fight him. Um, and he would just kick their butts all, all over the place. Uh, and then at the bottom is like William McKinley and, you know, Taft, unfortunately, even though he wrestled like a high school, wasn't so good. Clinton was terrible. Calvin Coolidge, like famously like fished and wouldn't move. Um, so some of those guys, Franklin Hyde Pierce, like zero at like very dainty, like wouldn't even get off his horse, like that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Where, where, where's, uh, where, where's, where's 45 in the rankings? Where's, where's Mr. Trump? Oh, uh, so you know what's interesting? Uh, he's fairly he, athletic, right? Or he he's was a very athletic high school athlete. Um, he could throw, and this is verified. I know people hate him and all these things, and I don't care about the politics. I care about the sports part. He could throw in the high eighties. Uh, there was a brief time where a couple scouts for the Red Sox, and I think the Reds actually went and looked at him in high school to throw. Um, he lettered in football, I believe. Wait, is that is that speed? I don't do speed sports for, yeah, sports so terminology. For, for major okay. League baseball, if okay. you're throwing in high eighty miles per hour, ninety okay, four nineties. You have a, you know, they say, the thing is, if you're doing that at 17, 18, they think they can turn you into a, maybe a major league baseball player, Got it. at least, or possibly a player in college. So he had a, what's called a live arm. He could throw. Um, people recognize it. He could hit. Um, so in high school, he, he had decent athletic ability. Where he gets, you know, lost, uh, where he loses a lot of points is his theory of, like, energy. Have you heard his weird thing of, like, he believes that everybody was only born with a certain amount of energy? He, it's quote, Oh, oh, right. <laughs> And if you do too I've never much, heard this one. you will die early. And so he conserves his energy for other things. So he That's does not so have funny. exercise since he was 22, other than golf. Which That's I don't so count funny. Really. I've, nev- I've never heard that before. Does, does, is there an interview or something where yeah, he discusses this? Google, yeah, I can find it for you. He says, <laughs> uh, and, and he says in another interview, this is, most of these are pre-presidency, so I, that's yeah. where he was probably talking a little more honestly. 
you know, he has friends who play tennis and run marathons, and he says that, you know, they're all getting hip surgeries and knee surgeries, and why would he want to do that? Um, but, you know, his diet is garbage. He looks as out of shape as you could. But, you know, in the, in the rankings, one of the things was, um, you know, medals of honor, which is like, you know, what you actually accomplished in high school as a young athlete. So he got some points there. So he falls. I don't remember the exact number. It's in the 20s or something. Okay. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, so what are you working on at the moment, John? What's your, what's your current project? So my current project is uh, I, I write this newsletter called Books and Biceps. It's, it's a newsletter that coming out every week where I, where I recommend uh, a book and also interview a lot of um, authors who have books coming out in the space that we would like, a lot of biographies, um, some fiction, uh, a lot of fitness stuff like that. And then um, I recommend like a workout or I do a lot of fitness history I like to find people in fitness who are kind of unsung heroes and write about them for the biceps portion of it. And then I just share a lot of things out uh, there. So that's like my kind of pet project that I always like to work on throughout all my books. It's, you know, with books, there's such a long like future, like you have to live in the future. Like you get a book, you know, I, the book that I have coming out in spring 24, which is like part two of my answer. I'm, I'm working on the biography of the macho man, Randy Savage, uh, who was a wrestling icon in the 80s and 90s. You know, him and Hulk Hogan were the, were the top two guys in, in WWE for a long time. He also, I, I like books where people are like one of one. Uh, he also was an incredible high school baseball player and played in the minor leagues for three or four years before he became a wrestler. His father was an iconic wrestler. His brother ended up wrestling with him in the WWE. Uh, so I've been working on that you know, since October, and that comes out spring of 24. But I like doing newsletters and I love Twitter and doing a lot of short brief stuff on there because the book I'm working on, it's, you know, 100 plus thousand words, several hundred interviews. Maybe I'm over 1200 sources at this point. Nobody sees it. Like no one's going to see it for so long. And I'm sure you have this with like an album or something where you're like, you're on a song that no one's going to hear for nine months or whatever it's going to be. I, I, need, I have that itch of like, I don't know whether it's like ego or you want people to, you want people to see what you're working on. So I use a newsletter for that. And I use... I use Twitter for that. And I have a couple, um, you know, I'm doing a few help ghost writing books with some NBA guys, but, uh, but my big, big project right now is getting this macho man biography done. That's awesome, man. You, you said for a long time, you said since you were, I think earlier on the interview, you said since you were, uh, since you were a kid, you wanted to do the, yeah the macho man one. Man. Well, why, why is that? So if anyone's listening and is a wrestling fan, I don't know if, if you're a big, you know, growing yeah, up. Yeah, I, I remember, I remember Macho Man. Yeah, ooh, I remember. I grew up in the perfect age for him. Like he got in the WWE in 85 and became champion like 88, 90. I was 10 and 12 years old. Like I was a diehard wrestling fan. I watched everything. I did his impressions. Like we had, my mom was sharing me videos of like all the dolls that I have of him. And as I got older uh, and started doing, you know, books and writing, like, you look at guys that are like, you know, someone's going to do the Michael Jordan biography and someone's going to do this and that and, and all these things. And you position yourself to potentially be able to do some of these big, big names because there's really usually only one. Babe Ruth has a few, but like the most of the time there's one shot because all the people you're going to interview are going to only talk to you once. Um, and so I just always, from the minute I want to be a writer, there's not a lot of books that take wrestlers seriously because of what it is. But he transcended in three different ways. He played, you know, played minor league baseball and actually played with Pete Rose and some really big name people, you know, athletes for people who follow baseball. He was a, you know, a hard like driver in terms of like the minor leagues of wrestling, like going all throughout the territories. He built He literally willed himself from nothing. He was a guy named Randy Poffa who failed out of baseball and couldn't, he got cut and had no contract. And he created over months and months and years this character of the Macho Man Randy Savage to become an absolute, for about five years, A-list 
He's on Arsenio. He's on Baywatch. He's in Spider-Man movies. Like he gets the Slim Jim thing, which transcends almost everything else he's ever done. And no one's done a book on him. And so when I, I've been wanting to do it for a while, I thought I needed to kind of bolster my chops of being able to handle a book of this size. So I did, you know, the definitive biography, at, you know, worked with Mingo Green and I did Charlie Ward and I did the definitive biography of the Seattle Supersonics with um, Isaiah Thomas and Gary Payton and, and Sean Kemp, people who are listening who are basketball fans will know those names. And so I just kind of really been ready. And then last year or two years ago, I did a book called 1996, a biography, which was like the definitive history of the greatest sports year ever to, to my mind from, you know, it was the year that before 1996, there was no Tiger Woods in terms of national consciousness. Obviously these, these people existed, but you know, in 1995, your sports conversations did not include the follow Tiger Woods, Allen Iverson, Kobe Bryant. There was no major league soccer. There was no WNBA. Um, there was no stone cold and there was no, the rock. So, so picture like the change in the sports and media landscape from 95 to 96, all those people debuted and things debuted in 96. And so after I did that, I was like, okay, I'm ready. I can handle the size and scope to my mind of a macho biography. Uh, my agent and I pitched it around and the place that I wanted to get it to was a place who did Andre the Giants biography and they, they were in. And so that's what I've been working on for, for almost six, seven months. I should be done soon. And then comes, as you know, the wonderful editing and line editing and cover options and all that stuff. I hear that, man. Did, have you had a chance to, did you get a chance to meet him? Have you met oh, him? So he passed away in 2012. Oh gosh. And do you know what? Oh yeah, yeah. he did. He did. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? Like I actually, for some reason in my mind, you know, you know, when someone, you know, you know, like people, pass, sometimes you're not sure with a yeah. celebrity, like if they're alive or if they've passed away right. already. Yeah, that that's one of those ones because I remember when that happened, but my my memory sort of yeah, it's deleted tough. A lot it. Of people have asked that. Like, who, yeah, know, they, they see because you know what's funny is, and this is one of the conceits of the book is like, you can't go a day on Twitter without seeing a macho man meme. Like he's everywhere. Like he's still to this day like the oh yeah, dig it, and then like all of the all of the things of just like, yeah. you may not like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's, he's kind of he's like still alive on the internet. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. What happened? And then they realized, oh my god, it was a long time ago. So he passed away yeah. in 2012. Now the the crazy part is, so his brother and him were super close. They wrestled together forever. They were best friends. Um, and so I would not and did not want to do the book without his brothers involved because I knew for wrestling diehards and, and you know people who have even a passing knowledge of him, the first question when I'm promoting the book next year would be like, did you talk to Lanny? His name's Lanny Poffo. Randy Savage is before Randy Savage was, was Randy Popo. Their dad was their dad was you know, Popo. And so um, when I was trying to pitch the book for about a year, I wanted to get Lanny's like approval. Not I didn't need his like you know you can do a biography without somebody, but I wanted to make sure he was. I wanted his blessing, you know. And it was a morbid thing. Like you know, I have a brother. Like if for some reason down the line someone wants to write a book about me, and God forbid I'm not here, like they better talk to my brother, like the closest person you know up through my whole life. And so I finally got a hold of Lanny. And he, he gave me a bunch of like serious questions to see if I knew I was the right guy. I knew what I was talking about. And, uh, I, we talked for almost two and a half hours and he was like, okay, you're, you're the, you got, you're the real deal. Like I'll help you out in terms of just answering questions. So then we did another longer interview and, um, it really meant a lot to me that he was going to be involved and that he understood my vision for the book and it was going to be treated like the totality of his life and his legacy and his family's legacy in the business. And then Lanny died. Um, Lanny passed away earlier this year, like, and it was really weird because as I'm writing it, I'm at my desk, I, I have a list of questions that I just called Lanny cues. And it was just stuff that only he would know. What was your apartment like in Ohio in 1983? Or like, what was his girlfriend's name that, you know, before this girlfriend or, 
you know, when, 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 when he broke, you know, when he hurt his back here and went to the hospital, you know, how long was the recovery? That kind of stuff that, that probably lost the history that he would know. And the friend of mine who got me in contact with him originally, like texted me, was like, dude, like horrible news. Like Lanny was, he had a heart attack and uh, he was only 70 or something. And so, um, so this is like the, la really now like the last interviews and the last discussions about the Poffo family wrestling legacy and Randy uh, with Lanny involved. So I, the timing's tough. I really wanted him to read it. He, he, it was like, it was like my main thing was I couldn't wait to finish the manuscript so I could, he could read it first basically. Um, and then he passed away too. So now this is really like the final say of everything. I hear that, man. Do you think this is your, going to be your, your biggest book that you've done now? Or this is the one that you've been, you've been building up to? I think so. I hope so, man. I, I love this topic. And the more people that I write, the more times I talk about it, as we all do with what we're working on, on, on Twitter and in my newsletter and on social, like the more excited people who get, who even know a little bit about him, he spans entertainment and sports and baseball and wrestling. And like, it's this big world. And so if, if the number of people who have already reached out and said, like, send this to me the second it comes out, I want you on my show. And isn't that mm -hmm. any indication? Um, I do think so. I think it has a real shot to be a big, big book. Um, and I've learned every time I do a book, I learn more of what works and what doesn't and ways to kind of promote it. And this one has just so many fun angles with the voice and the thing and, you know, getting people when they get the book to do the ooh yeah impersonation of him. Like there's a lot I can do with it. So I'm really excited that, you know, you're a marketer, you market all your, all your albums and all your books. Like you kind of have to get as geeked about promoting it as you are about it in order for it to really blossom. And I do think, I do think this is going to be, if not like the greatest book I ever end up doing, it's going to be up. That's awesome, man. Yeah. It, it's, it's hard because as a creative, you, you've seen and read and thought about and been involved in hundreds to thousands of hours of the creative work before you actually put it out there. So I think sometimes people forget that by the time you release an album, by the time you release a book, by the time you put something out there, it's like, it's new to everybody else because that's their first time seeing it, hearing it, reading it. But you've already heard that song hundreds of times. I mean, you wrote it. You've gone through all the takes. You've revised it. You've gone through all the editing process of the book, written, you know, gone through every single word. Like by the time it comes out, you can sometimes almost be a little bit tired of it yourself. You're already thinking about the next thing. Um, yeah. And that's one of the challenges, I think, when you're when you're a creator, because you have to maintain that that enthusiasm um, and kind of put that across, even though you yourself are like, oh, my gosh, this is my 800th time hearing the song. But, <laughs> you know, it's someone else has, has never heard it before. Yeah, I, have, I actually brings up a question for you. I, want, I was curious if this happened to you. So because you, you do music, which, which I, I, I don't do any rap or anything like that, but I admire the process of coming up with them. So for me, what happens is like I'm in the middle. I'm almost done with Macho Man. And then there will be a eight month lag or seven month lag until it comes out. And by then I already know I've pitched a few things. I kind of know what my next book's going to be. And I'll probably be maybe a quarter of the way through or halfway through this next project. But as I'm wrapping up Macho, other ideas come to my mind. And then by the time I'm promoting it, I've already not only on my second, the next project, but I've got like a list of the third and fourth things that I think might be cool. Does that happen to you with songs where you'll be writing a song and you're like, all right, this isn't going to be on this album. But like when you're talking about promoting your new one, you're actually like, dude, I actually 
really recorded like a banger this morning that you won't hear now for like two years. Does that happen to you? Um, because of the way I create, it doesn't happen for me. Okay. Um, I'm sure it does for a lot of musicians. I only, so I go long periods without writing at all. Okay. Right. So I, I'll go a year plus without writing a song, but then I'll write a whole album in, you know, five, six weeks. And then how long from that to people hearing it is it for you? Um, for me, because I self-release everything, um, usually under six months. Okay. It depends on how I decide to release it. You know, it could just be, it could, it could in theory, you know, for a single, it could range, you know, from one to two months to for an album, you know, up, up to six. But yeah, my, my, my creative, every artist has a different creative process. There's artists who are just studio, you know, studio junkies. They're just in the studio all the time or they, ho- or they record at home. So they're just, you know, constantly writing, recording, you know, putting stuff out or not with me. I'm very much like, okay, I'm writing an album. I'm in album mode. I'm writing an album. I'm not creating a lot of additional stuff outside it. I'm not drip feeding. I'm just like, okay, cool. I'm writing an album. I'm recording an album. And boom, there we go. So I I do it on a project basis because like right now I'm working on a book. So I'm not doing any music right now. Right. Right. Uh, I've got a couple shows coming up. So I'll, I'll I'll do some live performances, but I'm not writing any new music. All my creative juice is going into writing the book, right? My, my next book is my next thing. And I'll start thinking about another album. Once I've written that book, I, I, I'm not, I don't like to do like tons of different things at once. I, I'm kind of weird. Cause I have a lot of things, right? I do a podcast. I write books. I do music. I do public speaking and live events. Um, I do like coaching and consulting. So I work better if I like today's podcast day. Okay. Right. So today I'm not going to do this podcast and then try to, you know, write, a, write this. And then like, like, I'm just like, cool, I'm in podcast mode. I'm in interview mode. I'm in talking to people mode. And then there will be another time where I'm like, okay, cool. This whole week, I'm just working on the book. I'm not being distracted by interviews. I'm turning everything down. I don't want to right? I'm just, let me sit there, get in my flow state and get those words out there. I won't be tweeting. If you see me tweeting a lot, it means I'm, you know, probably not working on my book so much because when I'm when I'm working on the book, I yeah. like to like close that off, and everything that would go into a tweet, it goes into the book. That's smart. Do you do you block out huge chunks? Is it like so? When I my my thought of a writer when I grew up was like, and it's not feasible for most people. It's like, okay, I have a book idea. I'm going to go to some you know cabin in the woods, or I'm going to go disappear to some lake house somewhere, or go to the mountains lodge, and then for yeah. two or three weeks I'm going to wake I up, and have my coffee, and just crank it away. Yeah, so I actually kind of, I I, I I do kind of do that. Um, I I don't really write when I'm in like a normal setting. So um, I wrote my last album in Romania. I went to Bucharest for two months, and I just worked on the album, and I knocked that out. Uh, with my book, I spent, I did the biggest week I spent, I spent 10 days in Guadalajara in Mexico. Um, and then I spent some time in Cape town a couple months ago and that's where I've done like the bulk of the writing. And then, um, yeah, I'll, I'll do another writing trip somewhere. I'll probably take like a week in July and just disappear to some random place. Do you have goals where you're like, okay, I don't know if you have to, you know, if it's not yourself, probably you can kind of do like what you want to do. Um, do you have like word counts you're trying to hit or are you thinking like, I just want to get like the mm. bulk of it on paper so that I can edit it and finish it later? Like, what's your thought? Yeah, I, I just, I just let it flow. Um, I try not to do, do a sort of target by word count cause that can lead to me fluffing things up when I don't need to. I, I'm actually an extraordinarily concise communicator in both written and speaking. Mm-hmm. I don't like to, I don't like to like pad. I don't like to pad stuff. I, I like everything to be as long, only as long as it needs to be. 
right? If there's a tweet I can do in six words, I'm not going to do, you know, a hundred and I'm not going to do, you know, 50 words. Mm -hmm. If I can get a point across, like in a sentence, I'm not going to like do, you know, I, I I take adverbs out of many things. Like I just, I like, I like stuff to be concise. That's kind of how I speak. It's how I communicate. Um, maybe for some types of writing, that's probably not ideal, right? You're, You're supposed to embellish a little bit more, but, um, you know, I, I just, it's why, you know, my first book, Strong Advice, you know, it's under 100 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually it's helped more people for that reason. Because if yeah. I put out this massive, expansive book with, you know, all the, I don't even bother like detailing, you know, the names of the different muscles in the body and like all that, because you don't need to know it, right? Yeah. I don't go into all the nitty gritty of nutrition. I just like, look, this is what, this is what you actually need to know. Mm-hmm. Number one, because I think the, when books are actually longer, sometimes people buy them, but don't read them. Uh, this is yeah. a thing that it's a phenomenon that pe- no one really we talks like, about. We like these people equally, yeah. but yes, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, no, no one really talks about the fact that people sort of buy a book and they're just like, you know what, this is because I do that as well. Like, I prioritize shorter books. I have so many books, and I will read the shorter ones first because some of them are just daunting. Or even audiobooks. Some audiobooks I have in my library right now are like 24, 25 hours, yeah. whereas others are you know six to eight. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, let me you know, let, let me, let me, let me do the six hour one. Cause yeah. like spending 25, 30 hours listening to a single book is a little bit daunting. I feel like I need to kind of get myself like in the, in the mood for it. Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, that, that's the way I look at it, but it depends on the type of writing as well. My first two, you know, my, my first book was just, uh, you know, it was like a, a fit, fitness and nutrition yeah. guide. Right. So it doesn't need to be, you don't need all the flourishes and, you know, deep, deep writing in that way. And then my second book, of course, was a children's book, which by its yeah. nature is short and simple. Yeah. And, you know, it all rhymes. This one is going to be this one is going to be longer. It already is longer and and deeper and more involved than the first two. But I, I don't want it to be um, I, I don't want to be like, oh, let me make sure it's 100,000 plus words. Like if, if there's some books that need to be 100,000 words. Yeah, um, I don't think this one needs to be. If it needs to be 50,000, it'll be 50. If it needs to be 60, it'll be 60. You know, it'll be whatever, whatever it it needs to get the point across in the most concise, clear and helpful way possible. That's, that's how I do it. With traditional publishing that, you know, you have a range. So like Macho is basically 70 to a hundred, um, from the publisher's perspective. And that's a pretty big, generous range. Like if you, if you can't figure out that 30,000, that's a, you know, 30% of the book basically like Mm. plus or minus. So this is, it's actually, you know, I always joke like to even get to a hundred thousand, you actually rate like 200,000. So I'm like going back and paring down and pulling stuff out. Um, so yeah, the, the, the word count I've found, um, it goes both ways. It, it is the benefit of doing it your own thing. And I do, I've put up like Jock and Chief, like I said, a couple other things uh, on my own, which is very refreshing. Cause you, for what you just said about your music, like the lag is zero, like it's instant. Like I can just decide right now, I'm going to put about a book out August 1st. And if I want to write it and do it right, it's going to come out. Whereas like, you know, for other things, you're just tied to this long, long day in the future. And I think that's where, uh, from a writing perspective, like you either have this like disciplined traditional way to do it. Um, but I like both equally. I like having like, you know, the idea of here's how long it's going to be. And here's this, here's what I'm going to do. And every day I need to do X number of words to get there over this block of time. But I also like what you said, uh, which is just free flowing and coming up with what, you know, this idea is exhausted at 8,000 words is all I'm going to do. Um, and that's funny that the strong advice is one of the first times I, I came across your stuff. Cause my, my column in Muscle and Fitness was originally called Strong Advice, mm. um, and then they changed it to Strong Words. I 
can't remember why. I think there was some other thing in some other magazine called that, but I always loved that name as a book title. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I love it, man. John, it's been an honor to have you on the show. Um, Where can people find your work and where can people follow you online? Yeah, absolutely. Twitter at John underscore Finkel, J-O-N underscore F-I-N-K-E-L. And then there you can find the link to the Books and Biceps newsletter that I put out. Um, I have a website with all of my books. Um, also, a lot of the talks that I've done, like I said, on CBS and all the stuff is up there. Uh, that's just J-O-N-F-I-N-K-E-L, JohnFinkel.com. And uh, yeah, Twitter, where you and I are always going back and forth on stuff. And uh, that's where I kind of post all my fatherhood stuff, and fitness stuff, and book updates, and writing things and you know rocky memes and all that kind of stuff (laughs) awesome john it's been a pleasure to talk to you man and uh keep up the good work and all the best with the new book thank you thank you for having me on this was great i am the man sick with the slang sick and i'm destined for fame